Welcome to Continuum, the International Business Council podcast, where each episode we sit down with an incredible member of the IBC community, dive in, and learn from their journey. This is John Fitzgerald, and welcome to another edition of Continuum, the podcast series of the IBC. Today, our guest is Tom Mendoza, graduate of the University of Notre Dame. Tom, welcome. Thank you very, very much for being with us today. Thank you, John. My pleasure. Uh, it, I'm, I'm truly, truly looking forward to this. Um, it, and for those that don't know, which hopefully you do, um, the Mendoza School of Business at Notre Dame is named after Tom with his graciousness. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. But Tom, you know, I want to go back and kind of talk your roots a little bit. Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself, like where you grew up? Sure. And, and kind of like how you got to Notre Dame, what that process was. So John, I was born in New York City. My father's, my, my parents uh, were born in New York City. Their parents became, my father's father's from Cuba. His mother was from Ireland, so neither side liked him. Uh, my mother's parents were both from Czechoslovakia. So they grew up in the Depression. Um, I, I was born in the city with my, my older brother and uh, lived here until I was seven. And my sister came along, so we moved to Long Island. And that's where I, I ended up before Notre Dame, a place called Comac, Long Island. Uh, I was a, I had to get a scholarship to go to college. We were, that was very clear. We didn't have much money. My brother went on a baseball scholarship to Rutgers, and then I went on a wrestling scholarship to Notre Dame. So it was uh, it actually, John, was not the expected route because I was going to go to a Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, or Iowa wrestle, and I got injured. And the Notre Dame coach came to see me and said. Uh, you know, we'll get, we'll take a shot. We're just starting a program. We'd love to have you if you can get in Notre Dame. And he gave me a, a chance because it was a pretty bad injury and it wasn't clear I was going to be able to wrestle again. So things worked out for everybody eventually. <laughs> but that's how I got to Notre Dame. Did, Tom, did you wrestle when you were at Notre Dame or no? I did, but I got injured there too. I broke my nose and my cheekbones. A guy hurt me in an international match and I couldn't quit breaking. I couldn't quit getting hurt. So it, they, they lived up to their part of the bargain and helped me get some loans to get through at the end. And uh, but I never forgot that they really helped me win. Never forget my dad sitting there when the doc, I asked the doctor, when, when am I going to be able to wrestle again? It was in the hospital. And he said, I don't think you got, you understand what just happened to you. I don't think given those injuries, you'll ever wrestle again. And then uh, when they fell up from Notre Dame, Tom Fallon came in and he said that, you know, we'd be interested in having you come. He was at the match. He came to see how I was doing. I said, well, they just told me I'll never wrestle again. He said, no, that could be true. I, I understand that. But I was really impressed by what you did after I finished the match. And so he just said, we'll take a chance on you. And if it doesn't work, you'll be a student at Notre Dame. And that's what happened. So when you left New York, you go on this, whatever, 800-mile journey west. Mm-hmm. Was that a, a big step for you, or was that just kind of natural progression that you were going to go away to school, meaning away at the time, pretty far? Yeah, I wanted to go. I, I wanted to go do something on my own. You know what I mean? I wanted, I wanted to do something that was a complete challenge, complete difference. So, and the wrestling schools were all in the Midwest that I applied to. So, yeah, I I actually felt like I really wanted to tried something different. So the Midwest was just somewhere I'd never even been. <laughs> and I went. 
Tom, when you look at today, what are you passionate about? Kind of like what motivates you? What drives you to, to and not so much get up every day, but that has brought you to where you are? Well, it's kind of two different questions. What drives me today, so I retired from NetApp after 25 years in August 2019, but I have two young children. I didn't have any children in my first marriage, so I have a three-year-old daughter and a seven-year-old son. Congratulations. So it's not hard to know why you get up every day. <laughs> <laughs> they get me up. <laughs> uh, but it, I feel blessed, John, because I, you know, I have total control of my schedule. I still am very involved. With, I'm on three boards. I do a lot of mentoring of Notre Dame students. I'm very involved with, fortunately, with Notre Dame football and getting to meet a lot of those guys. And uh, so, I, you know, it's interesting. When I retired, the first thing I from NetApp, I didn't retire from business, but the first thing you think about, people always say, how are you going to keep busy? And about 100 days after I retired from NetApp, I realized I'm busier than I was before. Now, how did that work because people go, well, now that you have time, and I, I tend to say yes to virtually everything. It took me a while to balance my calendar to leave enough open time so I can have things like this or I can be with my kids, do whatever. And I've got it pretty much down now. It's, it's going great. That's great. You, you know, and you talk about you always say yes. And, and I wanted to thank you just because you answered my note to you. It, it was a blind note. And yeah. probably within a half hour on a Sunday, afternoon you get back to me just stepping <laughs> off a plane coming back from dublin from the, the notre dame navy game so thank That's you right. I, I truly appreciate that sure um I, sure and, and i know you spent the 25 years at netapp but even before that when you got out of notre dame what was your first job what did you do um my first job was almost by an accident getting into tech because my brother was in a bar in el paso texas trying to convince the guy that he should be a stockbroker and the guy says, no, I don't want, you're not handling my money, but you should work for me. <laughs> he worked for Burroughs Corporation. And they, uh, my, my brother said, well, I don't need a job. My brother just got out of Notre Dame. So the guy had me go interview in New York City. And he said, if that guy offers you a job, get on a plane. Don't tell him we're talking. And that's what happened. He, I got hired by a guy in New York, ended up in El Paso. So I, if I could give you just five minutes on what works for me. <laughs> what worked for me is number I look at my first eight years out of Notre Dame as a paid MBA. And I talked to a lot of young people about a way of thinking about it. I wouldn't worry about what your title is, not necessarily how much money you'll make in those first eight years, but you want to set yourself up for the rest of life. You want to set yourself up. So what happened to me? Number one, I realized very quickly I like being in tech because it's constantly changing. Number two, I like selling something at an enterprise level. Why is that? So non-transactional. I'm not just selling you something once, never see again. It has to do with I want to need, I want to understand your problems, and I want to utilize the technology that whatever I'm selling to help you come back and tell you I can solve a problem in a different way than anybody else. That defined what I did the rest of my time. At 26, I was successful in my second company called Data General, and they turned to me and they said, we'd like you to be the manager here, the district manager. I believe I was 10 years younger than anybody in the company at that time to get that job. And I, I honestly didn't want the job. And I said that. I said, look, it's like herding cats. I'm doing great right now. I'm making more money than I ever dreamt of. I have a fun all the time. My biggest problem is who, you know, who am I going to go out with today? My buddies. And they said, no, no, no. If you don't do it, they're going to probably bring in someone above us who 
thinks the way they used to think. I was the first non-engineer they hired. And I was there thinking, you got to be an engineer. When I went for the interview, the guy told me he'd fired three out of his four guys. Then he said, boy, I'd love to hire you, but you're not an engineer. I said, how's that going for you so far? <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay, maybe you can hire someone who knows how to sell, who can then convince an engineer he can solve his needs as opposed to tell him how it works. So I became a district manager, a sales leader at 26. And I tell people, you have to determine would you get more satisfaction out of giving a plaque or getting a plaque. And I realized instantaneously that standing up on stage and recognizing someone who worked for me for a contribution gave me much bigger rush than doing it, people talking about me. So from that moment on, 26 to you know, three years ago, I would led sales organizations at different levels. And then the last thing was I did my first startup eight years later. You know, I was at an uh, entrepreneurship conference at Notre Dame in Mendoza, three venture capitalists including Doug Leone, who came with me. Doug runs Sequoia Capital. And then um, two founders of NetApp. And the audience was business school students and engineers. And the question was, when we leave here, should we get right into a startup? Or should we go to a more experienced, uh, bigger company to get experience? Everyone agreed they should go to a startup. This is like 15 years ago. And then finally, somebody asked me, I was the last one, and I said, well, I'm not saying what you should or shouldn't do, but I'm very thankful I did not go right to a startup because by the time I did my first startup, I knew how to sell. I knew how to sell to a large company. I knew how to hire. I knew how to motivate. I knew how to do all the things you have to do as a sales leader. And so when I went to a startup, I was the only person on the West Coast, built it out. Uh, eight and a half years later, I was running half the country for a public company called Stratus. Went to Stanford for their executive program which is a great program called SEP, Stanford Executive Program. And while I was there, I met with five of the top venture capitalists in the world through a friend of mine who was one of them. He said to me one day, Tom, do you think you're going to come up with the next great technology idea? I said, no. He said, I don't either. <laughs> he said, but the guys who do are going to want to know you. And so he put me in front of the venture capitalists. Uh, he said, follow the money, see where they're investing. And I concluded that how you store information was going to be the next big challenge. People, and from 85 to 90, you know, the chip company, prior to that, you bought a computer from somebody, the whole thing was in one box. Now all of a sudden, Microsoft takes the operating system, Intel takes the chips, Oracle and Sybase take the database. These were all things that were sold in a computer. And then finally, Cisco made it so that you could drive all this information out of the data center with their networks. So now, how are you going to store all this stuff now that it's not sitting in a room? And that's what these guys were focused on. And three of them were in one company called Auspex. And they came in and said, we'd love to have you join us to help run sales. And I did. And then two of the geniuses who came up with the product left because they they believed they could do in software what we were doing in hardware. And uh, four years later, they created NetApp which does what I just said. And they reached out to me and said, we'd love you to run sales here. And so I joined when I was a 32nd employee, three salespeople. And we drove it to $6 billion and a lot of people. Things went well after that. Did you ever envision, or it's probably more dream, uh, that it would be one, a 25-year ride, and two, 
just kind of what this would develop into? The answer is no. You know, but I'll tell you what we did right, John. Dan Wormanoven became the CEO. I joined in May 94. He became CEO in uh, November. The, the two of them, me and him and the two founders, kind of ran most of the stuff in the company for a long time. But we did an offsite that January, and we were going to determine what is our mission? What are we here to do? And we left there. You know, when you get in those discussions, you're off to get revenue, EBITDA, what lists we might make. We didn't go into any of that. We said, we're going to create and build a company we're proud of the rest of our lives. That's our mission. And the reason that became so powerful, like when we were going to hire somebody, people say, are you proud of John? And you're too, I don't know if I'm proud of him. Why are you hiring him? Well, I want to promote John. Are you proud of him? Yes, I am. Done. No, no, no boxes, no HR. Just tell me. Because I've always believed if, if a team looks left and right and you're proud of each other, you'll sacrifice for each other and you won't let each other down. That's my view of great motivation. You do it because you don't want to let somebody down. Not because you're intimidated, not because you're afraid somebody's going to fire you. You just don't want to let them down. So, so John, you know, the first six years, we went from zero to a billion. Uh, one of the fastest growing companies in Silicon Valley history, 250 to a billion in revenue in two years. Then the dot-com bubble hit. 75% of our business was tech or internet. So our stock, which had been one of the highest flying stocks in history, Went from 156 to 6. Public at 12, 424 and splits, 156 to 6. You find out a lot about yourself when there's a big problem, right, John? People you expect to step up don't. Yeah. People you never thought would do. And your relationship changes forever. Well, we found out we had a lot of people who cared because nobody could take our people. The search guy called me. He said, you know what? There's only two companies. I can't get people to leave. That's Apple and you. And we stayed and we brought it back. And in fact... In 2009, well, we went for a billion, 800 million. Took us a few years to get back to a billion. Then we got to 3 billion by 2009. And by 2012, we got to 6 billion. I, I stepped down as president or moved up to vice chairman actually in 2009. And Dan went to chairman in 2010. And in 2009, we voted the number one company in America to work for, which I think was the coolest moment in my whole career. Um, we were number one in more than 10 countries, but being number one in America at that moment, you not only were we growing fast, and we did it in a way people were proud to be there. People were proud to be our customers and our partners. That's what we accomplished. Tom, you mentioned you know, the whole concept of you don't want to let each other down. And that was really, really a call it a driver, a pillar of, yep. of the success of the company, which which kind of dovetails into talking about culture. And, and I've certainly seen you speak many times. I was very fortunate. You talked to our MBA class. Talk about the importance of culture in business and the correlation of culture to success or lack of culture and lack of success. You know, John, I just like to comment that where I got that from was how my dad raised me. You know, we do, he had, you know, worked on multiple jobs at some points, but he always made it to my sporting events. He always would just show and he would support me. And at the end of the day, I would have done anything not to let him down. And I thought when I got leadership, I had to earn the right for people to feel that way about me. He earned that right. So we, we knew when we started NetApp that you, you don't have to treat people well at all to make a lot of money. That's been proven time and again. I live in New York City. Yeah. Go to Wall Street. <laughs> we pay a lot of money. We'll treat you the way we want. That's how it's 
historically, that's the trade-off, right? But I, we all felt together that we could do it differently, that we could be make a very successful company, but we're going to do it in a way that people feel respected, appreciated, and don't want to let you down. You're still going to have high standards. You're still going to demand a lot. But if you feel respected and appreciated, you're doing it for a different reason. And I need the paycheck. That's why I better. So I used to tell people that if if the culture of the company is right and fits you, you feel like you came home. You feel like you, you, you don't have to all of a sudden have values. You have these values. You're just going to live them. Yes, let me just make a comment on culture versus values. I've seen values on a wall of really bad companies that I knew were bad companies. Nobody liked working there. Nobody trusted them. The values were the same as ours. They just didn't live them. So when I think of culture, John, I say it's the behavior you witness when you deal with anyone in the company. And right away, if I say that, you could think of companies you deal with that you drive you nuts with their culture. You're like, <laughs> and there are other companies where you go, you know what? If there's a problem, they don't make it my problem. If I call them and I'm in real need, they're going to be there for me. And so we said to ourselves, our, our product was you put all your stuff on a network and we store it. That wasn't how things worked before that. They were in computers. Well, that means when there's a problem, they don't know whose problem it is. And we just said, no matter when, who gets to call on our company, take on the problem. If it's not our problem, do what you can to fix it, and then we'll tell them what really happened. So culturally, it was, we are here to solve problems. We're here to make that customer happy, and we'll do whatever it takes. And, and we tried to empower people so that they can make decisions to go make that happen. And if one of the powerful things that's happened, John, we had a situation where the back of the product is disk drives, and we were on... The whole disk drive industry went on. They didn't have enough of them. So digital, we had to buy through a larger company who weren't big enough yet. And we walk in an executive staff meeting or a public company, and the, and the guy says, I've got some bad news. Oh, really? What's that? We were flying like this. He said, we bought, you know, we went on consignment. was right, the word I was looking for. So we bought a ton of disks at a very, very high price. And then they took it off consignment, and the price went through the floor. So we now own this inventory that's probably going to make us miss a quarter because our expense line got whacked. And Dan asked a few questions. Tell me why you did it. Long story short, he turned to me and he says, Tom, you and the head of marketing, go figure out what, how we get out of this. We, we ended up doing was selling systems at cost to all our resellers, which they, they were having struggling to buy our equipment to show people. And we got out of it. But the thing I'll never forget is Dan never asked, who did that? He never asked that question. He just asked the process. And when the process made sense, he said, how are we going to get out of it? So culture to me is something when you, when you, if you've ever experienced a place you've worked where you're doing it together with everybody else, you're doing it because you care and you're doing it because you want to. Think about sports teams, John. You have, I think Marcus Freeman has a great culture on our team. I, I'm very close to the situation. And I'll tell you, I went to practice twice this year so far, just watching how these guys act toward each other and what they put into it. You can see how much they care about each other. There's nobody crying about where they're on a depth chart. You know, everyone's trying to do it for the right reasons. So I, I, 
at the end of the day, we, we built that kind of culture. It was recognized by virtually everybody. And that was just something that was important to us. It was important to us to show that we could do it. Tom, you mentioned a few minutes ago, you talked about venture capital. And I, I want to ask you a couple of questions on venture capital, private sure. equity. You know, it, it, certainly, I think over the last probably 20 years, probably more so for you, they've certainly become part of our language on a, on a daily basis in business. Um, what do you think like, it could potentially be the most common false assumption about venture capital or private equity? And I hate to put them in the same bucket, but just the bigger picture about that market. Well, a couple of things. One is I think a number of founders have the thought that they don't want to give up a piece of their company for these people. We never thought that way. We thought we wanted to get big and we wanted, but we took smart money. We took Sequoia, we, Sequoia was our venture company. Don Valentine's most famous venture capitalist ever. He founded Sequoia, became our chairman of the board. That was a seminal moment for our company because Don had been through a lot, seen a lot. He was chairman of the board of Cisco, and Don helped our company enormously. Uh, I've been on many boards since, as you know, and almost all of them are venture capital backed or private equity backed companies. And I, I would, I think, the answer to that is people think these people don't care about anything but the money. Well, of course, they're there to get a return for their people, but I have seen some incredibly talented people that I've been on boards with that give a lot of their time to try and help founders, try to help people grow, try to help people when there's a problem. Almost every board I've been on, maybe even everyone, I, I don't have one that stands out. When times are tough, they're supportive and they really want to help them get through it. Now, when times are good, they might push. But I, and like anything else, there's good and bad people, I'm sure, in this world. I'm very fortunate to be aligned with some unbelievably good people. And I, to be honest, I don't like doing stuff just by myself. I'd rather go into a deal with these guys because they've seen everything. Uh, they're very, very experienced. And then I add my piece. My piece is how do you help scale a, a software company globally? I know, how to, I know how to do that. But these people are very, very, if you do a board correctly, they're all coming together from different disciplines, backgrounds, maybe engineering, maybe finance. Um, I think private equity and venture tends to be a little different too. The venture, the guys that I get in with are tend to be long, long-term players in a company. And the PE companies in general tend to buy something that they know could be run better. And then they fix it up and probably resell it again in many cases to somebody else for a lot more money. That's kind of that business. Whereas venture capital is not looking to sell it to somebody and they could. But the ones that I've been involved with try to get you big enough you can go public. So two different mindsets. It's not a broken company that we can fix. It's typically a younger company that we can fund and help. Whereas PE looks at a company and goes, geez, if they just had this and had that, it's a good company, good product. It's not, you need to run it differently. And they invest, in, if, especially if they take a majority investment, and they, they fix it by putting the people they think can help out to make it right. How much impact are interest rates having on the pace of deals today? Well, I think it depends on if you're leasing a lot or not. If you're leasing a lot. Also, I do think people become more hesitant about big buys because they probably are going to, in many cases, go get some money. Uh, I think it, slow, it slows down big transactions. 
But do you see it coming back, though, as the interest rates have tabled? Yeah. You know, my take is if you have a really good business, it doesn't affect you that much. If you're in a struggle, let me put it, I'll tell you where it really affects things. If you're in a young company and you want to go for money, think about what was happening between 2012 and 2019. All these guys wanted to see high growth. It didn't matter whether you made money. All of them. And and you were rewarded in the stock market for that. And all of a sudden, they said, whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't really want all that growth unless you're making money. Well, if you've been investing at these high rates, and now, so if you're going to turn that flywheel back, you have to change your business model, and you may need to go out for money again. And the rules for giving you that money has changed. It's changed dramatically. Now they want to know how you're going to make money in whatever time period before I'm going to invest or give you that kind of valuation. So valuations have definitely come down. Unless you have a unique company that's making money and high growth, then I think you'll be in good shape. If you had a chance to talk to the college Tom today, what would you tell him? I would tell him that your life 10 years from now will probably be determined by the decisions you make today, and more importantly, the people you choose to call your friends. That's the biggest single thing I think that impacts where you end up and how you how your life ends up. You know, I had to give a talk for high school. I was invited to give a talk for high school graduation last year in Miami. And uh, we were living down there for a bit. And um, that was a, one of the hardest talks I ever had to give because I'm so used to talking to these type of audiences, people who are professional, college students. I'm thinking, what am I going to tell the high school? people. And and I, I went back to, let me just tell you what worked for me. Not, I don't want to tell you what worked for you. And that was a question from one of the people in the audience was, what's the number one piece of advice you give these kids? And I said, you're about to go away to college. You, your friends right now is because you, you live in the same neighborhood. You go to college, especially if you go away. You now choose your friend. <laughs> choose wisely. Choose people that will inspire you. Choose people that you can depend upon, who have your interests at heart. And if you do that, 10 years from now, as you know, John, if you have really good friends in your life, your life ends up usually going pretty well. If you don't, it won't. Tom, you mentioned a, a number of different people that you know, you've worked with, worked for. But is there any one single person that really stands out to you that helped guide you from a leadership perspective? I think the first one was this too, I think. John Mortgage. John was the original CEO of Cisco Systems. Cisco sits on John Mortgage Way. But he was my boss in the previous company, Stratus. And I watched the way John managed people. He was always respectful. He was he was he asked tough questions and pushed. But I really liked his values. He went on to be one of the largest funders of public education in Wisconsin. Did a lot of great things for a lot of people. And he's a legend at Cisco because of the way he ran that company. So that was the first one that took a particular interest in me that he mentored me. And then Dan Warman opened when I got to NetApp, when he joined. I mean, Dan called me up. I was in Dallas. I knew we were going to get a new CEO. We, The company was started with three founders, but we were hoping to do well enough that we'd hire to get the right venture capitalists to bring in the right. CEO, when Don Valentine decided he would be our chairman, he hired Dan. I got a phone call. I said, Tom, are you a football fan? I was living in Dallas, Texas. I said, yeah. 
He said, well, I know exactly who you are, and I just want to tell you this. I'm going to make you my Emmett Smith. I'm going to give you the ball until you tell me you can't run with it any longer. I had never had anybody, John, in my life, especially I worked with mostly engineers. They don't really embrace the sales guy that much, the sales leader. And Dan and I became partners from day one. Day one. He called me. He sent me a note on something yesterday to talk. You know, we're still like this today. Um, but I learned so much from him. And I think he'd say he learned quite a bit from me about we both came. He was one of the youngest engineers, vice presidents ever at IBM. Super successful Hewlett Packard. He went into a company as a CEO that did not work out, not because of Dan. When he got there, he found out he had stuff for warehouses and stuff. So they had to redo their earnings. But he didn't let the investors down. He stayed for three years, got it right. And then decided to move on. And Don Valentine was an investor in that company. Don Valentine never forgot that Dan stayed and fought through something he inherited. And when he came here, Don told me the two best CEOs he ever hired in his life were Dan and John. He hired John at Cisco. He said both of them, people didn't believe they could do it. John, because he had a sales background in 1986. That wasn't who you put in typically. And Dan, because he had come from a company that didn't work out, and they had the burning desire to show people they could do it. And what I loved about the two guys is they both have a fantastic moral compass. People worked there, knew they could trust them. You know, they didn't say one thing, do another. So uh, between the two of them, I, I know that my style has adapted some of the stuff from both of them. Tom, what do you think people could do today to continue to develop leadership abilities? I think that when you think about leadership, it's just a couple of elements to it. Number one is your job is to inspire other people, and your job is to aspire to do great things. If you want an organization to do great things, no one's going to aspire higher than you. You know, I think about inspiration. I, I was I gave a talk at Stanford, and about four days later, I was speaking at West Point, twenty oh nine. I'm on the plane going there. We're in war, and I'm going to be speaking to. 42 cadets are selected by the 4,400 as next great generation of leaders at West Point. There was Secretary Gates the day before the White House. And I was the first non-military guy ever invited to come speak to that group. So I was, I was kind of humbled by the whole thing. And I was thinking about the concept of inspiration. And I think it's offered the most when it's needed the least, the least when it's needed the most. When you've won something, you've succeeded. Everybody calling you. That's not really inspiration. But if you, so I think inspiration is looking to find people who need that talk. People, the, the end result's not certain. Maybe they're hurting in a game and they're playing. Maybe you're in a battle where things are not going our way. That's the time. A call and saying, hey, I really appreciate everything you're doing. What can I do to help you? Inspires. So I, when people, another way of asking that question sometimes, John, is, is leadership something you learn or are you born with? That's, that's, to me, I think it's a little of both. The number one thing you need in leadership, I believe, is courage. You need to lead. You don't want to figure out what everybody wants. You don't want to figure out what, what makes you look good. You want to be able to collaborate, get the best out of the people, make sure they, under, they know that they have their backs, and take chances. You, get, you, gotta have, you have to have grit. That's what separates companies, in my opinion, the guys who make it in startups and don't. You got to have grit. You got to hang in when times get tough. It's not just 
everybody's good when everything's working great. You have to hire well, you have to inspire well, and you have to make sure that regardless of anything else, that you do the right things when they, because they're the right things to do. I want to switch gears now, and I want to talk specifically about Notre Dame, your involvement with Notre Dame, and, and mm-hmm. really the importance of Notre Dame to you. And, and the question is, why? I mean, what you've been tremendous, continue to be tremendous to the school. What's the impetus behind that? You know, I, I was, a, I guess, a normal contributor, I would say, for quite a long time. Uh, just, you know, they ask you to contribute certain levels. For my, whatever my age was, I contributed what people expected. My mother passed suddenly in 1994, the year we started NetApp. And we had no thoughts that my mom would die first. We always thought my dad would. He had a stressful life. His family didn't have a lot of long life. My mother was the opposite. And so I thought, what could I do to honor my mother and help help my dad? Because that's, and so I called Notre Dame, incoming call. I was inspired by my college roommate at Notre Dame who had done a four-year scholarship, a, I don't know, partial or whatever, in his father's name to honor him took a loan out to do it when we left college. So I called him and I said, I want to do a four-year scholarship in my father's name, an Arthur A. Mendoza scholarship. And they were like, oh, that's great. I said, there's three conditions. They don't, <laughs> they don't want to hear that. I know that. I said, number one, I don't care, black, white, man, woman, whatever. No, think broadly, but they got to be a perfect fit for Notre Dame, in your opinion. Number two, they got to have everything you want except money. It all by but on the first one too. They got to they got to want this badly. If you call them and say, uh, "Oh, you're getting a scholarship to Notre Dame," they go, "You know, I got to think about it." You screwed up. You got to pull that scholarship. It's there's so many kids who would die to get in there. Number two, they got everything except money, and you're going to call them and tell them somebody they never met. Is going to take care of that for their four years. They go, what's number three? <laughs> I said, number three is they got to write my dad a, a letter every semester. I want a relationship with my father. And uh, they had that till the day he died. He was getting those letters. Those letters were sitting right next to him in the hospital when he died. So it meant a lot to him. And then our company did very well. And uh, I called Notre Dame in probably 99, because 2000s when I did it. I think, and I said to him, "Is there something we could do that could possibly help change the inflection of the university?" And the why on this, John, is now after that first part, I just like what Notre Dame stands for. I'm not one of these guys. Notre Dame's better than everybody else, or but it's it's a part of my life that's important to me, and I like what they stand for. They try to do things the right way. <laughs> so the second time, I said, "Look." If you think there's something here that could really help, you know, and they kind of said, how much do you want to spend? And I said, I would I would focus on the what, not the how much, because it's not important to me. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not calling you just because I feel like giving away money. And uh, they gave me a number of options. One was, we're thinking of the engineering school. I said, if you put my name on an engineering school, everybody in it will leave. <laughs> what are you talking about? It was hockey. I don't watch hockey. <laughs> And then business school. And then he went on to other things. And uh, 
that was that was the one I thought I could help on, not just with money. Because I did this 23 years ago, John. And um, I thought, geez, I know something about this. I know many people that could come here and give talks and be involved with these students that could really help. And so that was what I decided to do. You know, they didn't rank undergraduate business schools. I asked Carolyn Wu, who was the dean, what are you going to do? What are you going to do to make this school different, special? And she said, we're going to lean into value-based. We're going to lean into doing things the right way. And right after that, Enron happened and WorldCom happened, all these scandals about people losing their pensions. And you could just see the, the see change here. So in 2006 was the first time they ever ranked undergraduate business schools in the United States. Now, the MBA, and, and it's all Mendoza, but I'm just saying the undergrad had never been ranked. When the first year they did it, Notre Dame was ranked third. I was like, wow. Then seventh. And then first six times in a row. And now you can't have a discussion about great undergraduate business schools without including Notre Dame, right? And the grad school's done very, very well. We have a great dean, Dean Kremers. So I kind of got drawn in. I, <laughs> I wasn't that involved. I was always proud. But once I got close to the school and really had the opportunity and the access to meet everybody and the students especially, I'm always so amazed, John, when I meet people there. I was just there this weekend. How proud they are to be there. And how proud they are that they have this opportunity and they don't want to waste it. I just thought, I mean, this is, it's a gift. It's, you know, so 23 years later, I get people say to me, you know, introvert and expert. Dave Hitz used to say this to me, founder of NetApp. If you're an extrovert, you get energy from these type, from a large group. If you're an introvert, you can do it, but it takes away from you. I get completely energized by being back there and talking to all these people. And everybody comes up. I'm just proud and, and feel fortunate to be in a position where I was able to do that. Well, I, I personally, I'm very thankful because I benefited from it. Um, <laughs> I, and you talk about a great segue because, you know, earlier this month in September, um, right for Labor Day weekend, you led a panel discussion that when I first looked at it, I'm thinking, okay, this is kind of intriguing. And, and you talk about uh, just dynamic, I'm going to say it. And, and you were on stage, yep. and, and again, you led it. You had Neil Ivey, who's a head women's basketball coach at Notre Dame. Derek Mays went to Notre Dame, played in the NFL, All-American, et cetera. And then Eddie George, who's mm -hmm. the coach at Tennessee State, who Notre Dame was playing the next day, former Heisman Trophy winner. And you talked about diversity, leadership, culture. And can you talk, I mean, if you want time, talk about that session. Yeah. But kind of the bigger picture, the importance of those three elements in business today. Sure. Well, this was an interesting thing because I did not know Eddie or Nayu, Ivy. Um, Al, excuse me, Ivy. So Derek called me up and he said, and we're good friends. He said, you know, this is a big thing. We're playing a historically black college. They're getting their first big national television exposure. People are going to see who these people are, what they stand for. I'd like to do something other than just the football game. I said, I think that's a great idea. And so we, he, he said, I think Eddie George would be happy to get on stage. And, and I said, you know, the day before a game, that might be tough for him. In fact, we invited Marcus, who came right after it, 
and we 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 spent time together. But his schedule was crazy the day before a game, so I knew that. But Eddie Eddie really wanted that opportunity, and he made the time, and I appreciate that. And then some. Then I don't know, and some somebody said we we should get Niall Niall Ivy in here. Oh my, was she good? <laughs> All three of them were great. But I was blown away by some of the stories she told and the way she did it with the passion. So here we are. The reason I only bring that up, is I've never done a panel discussion where I didn't know anybody. Two out of three, I didn't know. So I don't know if they're going to be comfortable speaking. What if they're just quiet? I didn't know what I was walking into. And they were phenomenal. Because all I do is throw out questions. I said to them, look, talk among yourselves whenever you want. So go back to your bigger question. And we covered some amazing things in that session, as you said. But at the end of the day, I believe diversity is important because you don't want everybody who looks like you and thinks like you. You won't come to the best conclusion. I think it's great to have people in a room where they're different ages, different race, different sex. I told a story during that day about when I was in England at the early days of NetApp. We probably had 30 people in a the room. They were leaders. They were all within five years of each other, all white males, all had gone to the same kind of schools. And I said, the main thing seem odd about this? And by the way, we were struggling as an organization. And I kept talking about thinking differently. They don't think differently. They're hiring people. And they said, well, you can't find people like that think differently. Yeah, you can. You got to be open to it. So I, when, it, when I used to go around the organization in the early days, I always said, everybody, where'd you come from? What company? And I love the fact they came from all over. They weren't from any one company. We weren't trying to recreate where we were. We're trying to go somewhere different. So I think diversity is critical. And of course, these people had some strong leadership thoughts. You had Derek coach, I mean, played for Lou Holtz, Eddie George played for a great coach and, and, and then you have Muffet McGraw with Niall. And they, but what struck me is they've certainly learned their lessons, but they put their own spin on all three of those about leadership and the, and the power of leadership and, and when you need it the most, those kind of people who you turn to. And then culture. And, and the, Niall told the story about, you know, when she came back to Notre Dame, she won a national championship as a player. She won it in 2018, one of the most amazing victories ever. When Enrique hit that shot, then she went to the Memphis Grizzlies. And in Muffet's last group, we had five starters leave for the WNBA and all get drafted in the first 17 picks, including the first, the fifth, the seventh, I think. So she walked into a tough situation when she came back. We actually had a losing record. In her first year, we struggled a bit. It was tough to recruit. And now she just finished the third year. She was ACC Coach of the Year. They won the ACC. Only a terrible injury to top two players, two of her top players, including Olivia Miles, who was the best point guard in the country. So when she went down, we couldn't go all the way, but it, this team was dangerous at the end of the year. And she told the story about creating that culture and, and how important it was. It's the type of people you choose to bring in and the standards you set and making sure everyone is all in on those standards and you don't make exceptions. You don't make, oh, it's okay. Or, if it's not okay. And she has done it. I've had the good fortune of meeting a number of her players now. And they they are all in on we're going to go win in the right way. So it was just a great conversation. I I, I left there just like lifted. I was like, that's so cool. I, I, I mean, personally, I look at it from the standpoint of giving back. And it wasn't just 
you know, as you mentioned, the lump sum that you gave, you have stayed so engaged with the school and the opportunity to bring new people in and, and create these forums and things like that. But my last question in the topic is, can you talk about the importance of giving back? And, and I'm not talking about the monetary aspect right. of it, but more the time yeah. and how important that is for you and for our listeners, why that should be really critical for them. You know, to me, John, it's just a privilege to give back. I, I enjoy getting to know people and helping them in any way I can. So, you know, I got to be careful on time, especially with two young kids now, but this has been something I've done for a long, long time. And, you know, the people that I know well all do it. They all do it. They, they try to help when they can. So it should be a goal. The goal is how do we make everybody better? How do we lift people who can't possibly lift themselves in some cases? And what can I do to, you know, I had a phone. I, I did a thing when I was president of NetApp. I, would, I, I said, I started this in 1996. I had part of our culture was catch someone doing something right. If you see somebody do something extraordinary to help NetApp, to help, to help a partner, to help a customer, to help society, call me and I'll call them and I'll thank them. So one day I'll give you an example. This guy called me from Houston and there was a marketing seminar. And he said after the first day, the end of the day, he saw the young lady who had put the thing together. She was loading all this food in her station wagon. He thought, that's interesting. It must have a big family. And then the second day, she's doing it again. And he said to her, boy, you must have a hungry family at home. She said, no, I'm taking this to a homeless shelter. I called her up. I said, that's why we're here. You're doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. I hope we, we make everybody a lot of money and a lot. Of, but really, at the end of the day, you get judged by what kind of impact did you make on the earth, on the people around you. When you look back at your life, I can tell you that I'm sure of this. You won't think about did you make everybody else proud of you. You won't think about any kind of singular accomplishment you had, but you will think about a simple thought. Am I proud of the life I lived? And you're the only judge. And you really want to be able to be proud of the life you lived. So take a step back if you're a young person listening. Say, if I was much older, and this is always hard to do when you're young, and I was looking back, what would I want to say about my life? And quite honestly, having helped a lot of people, having been there for people when they needed it, is what I remember. Thank you. Tom, I, I want to switch and I want to talk a little bit about the IBC. So the International Business Council, which is the Alumni Association of the Student International Business Council. First SIBC chapter started in 1989 at Notre Dame. Frank Potenziani benefited it, had this great idea. Expanded then to a second chapter at the University of San Diego in the 2000s. And then a third chapter at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. And I, I wanted to get your opinion, your thoughts on the IBC vision, and it's to create a world where the business community acts as a principled force for the common good globally. And, and just kind of your take and, and your thoughts on that. And I realize, you know, the SIBC at Notre Dame started after you were gone. Today at Notre Dame, it's the largest student organization there with about 3,000 students. Wow. So your input, I, I'd love to hear this. Well, first of all, as you know, the mission of the business school, the Mendoza School of Business, is to grow the good in business, which is 100% aligned with what you're saying. And I, 
I, when I started my story, when you asked about NetApp, I said we wanted to do something where, you know, treating your own people in a way that is respectful and appreciative and, and enabling their lives. You know, one of the things we did at, at NetApp, and I believe they still do it, we, we came up with this benefit probably in 2007 or maybe even before that. No, no, no. It was probably in the 90s. But what we said was every employee gets one week vacation. In addition to anything else, fully paid, no questions asked if they'll work for a charity, any charity. And the reason we did that is people were saying, can you, will NetApp support the National Cancer Society? Will we do the heart thing? And meaning either give them time to do it or, or fund. And we said, look, let's let people do whatever their passion is. We had people go down to Haiti after the earthquakes and, and help rebuild houses. We had people, many, on Habitat for Humanity. And so it's a, it was a benefit that fit our culture, and it did amazing things for a lot of communities. So there was one guy from Canada, Dave Botterill, who has made it his mission to help out in Haiti. And he has gone down there, and he's, first it was bringing him supplies and his basketballs and training. But, I mean, we don't want to dictate what the passion is, but if everybody, now it's a 13,000-person company when I left, has a week off to go help somebody, you can do a lot of cool stuff. And they, and a lot of times they tended to do it as teams. How about the five of us go, there was a, there was a hurricane, uh, excuse me, tornadoes that went through Kansas. And our, uh, one of the employees' parents' farm was destroyed, and the, the guys from Minnesota went down there to help rebuild it. It's like, how good is that? <laughs> this is what we're here to do. So, and this goes back to you. Not, it's not just money, it's time. What are they doing with their time? And, you know, this is, there's a lot of good people in the world that if you enable them to do stuff, you can just set off. Well, the other thing is, you know, we support a number of organizations. We became the largest supporter of the St. Baldrick's organization, which is Children's Cancer Research. They're the number one funder of it. But we ended up doing shaving events. People shave their heads. Other people donate. Uh, that's because the three guys that started, one of their kids got cancer. And when they have to shave their heads as a little kid, that's a really tough emotional moment. So we had these events. We did 23 of them one year around the world. I think we raised a million and a half dollars, which is a lot for any charity, obviously. But at the time the employees put into it, it became a huge thing. We were the number one thing for uh, Marie's Toys for Tots one year. So we picked, we selected something that, in addition to the charities, that we, I mean, the time off, what is it that if we did it would have a really big impact on the communities we live in? But then we got everybody behind it. We made a big thing out of it. That To me, this is what business is about. And you know what? You don't do it for this reason, but people are proud to work for a company that cares about things other than making money. What are you most grateful for so far in your life? Grateful that I had parents who cared for about the family, that it wasn't about anyone. We didn't have anything material, really. Certainly not when I was growing up. But I always knew that they, they had my back and they wanted the best for us. I never felt unsafe. I never felt, I wonder if they're going to, they, they love me. Um, I didn't realize till many years later that people grow up like that more so more than we want to think about. And it's incredible what they have to overcome just to get back to 
a level playing field. So I'm very grateful for, for that. I'm obviously very grateful to have the family I have today. You know, not many people have a family later in life, but uh, I can tell you it's incredible for, for me. I, I never was going to retire the way other people do, you know, meaning play golf every day or that was never on the agenda. I want to stay interested and interesting is the way I put it. Keep that mind going. Yeah. And boy, when you have two young kids running around, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any choice now, John. But that's going to keep you young. I love it. I, you know, I took my son to a Notre Dame game, that Tennessee State game. Right. Funny story last year, John. I took him to his first game, Cal. And we're in the business school. A guy named David Riley and I were going to do a talk on that stage. And my son's holding my leg right here. Never been there before. And Dean Kremer says, hey, um, hey, Jake, he says, we got all these people here that are going to go on a tour. You want to go? He goes, nah, I'll see you when I go here. <laughs> he's, he's, I like the confidence. I was going to say, <laughs> let's start hitting the books, kid. <laughs> Good for him. Um, okay. And speaking of books, is there any, is there a book that you've maybe recently read that you'd like to share with our listeners? I'll tell you a great book I read that I would recommend to everybody. It's called Boys in the Boat. There is no better book than Boys in the Boat. It's going to be a movie in December. Uh, George Clooney is everything bringing it to the screen. But it's about these in Seattle. Uh, rowing is a big sport in elite co colleges. It's not in Seattle. And, in fact, the only one in on the West Coast was Cal. You know, it's all Yale, Harvard, all that. And in the 1920s, early 30s in the Depression, one of the coaches at Cal moved to Seattle and took the coach, head coach of Washington. And the kids came from really hard scrabble beginnings. They're working fields to get food to eat. And then they come to rowing practice. And in 1936, they represented the United States in the Olympics, and they won it. The Jesse Owens Olympics, true story. So the story of, there's a lot of facets to it about overcoming uh, huge adversity, number one. Number two, everybody on the boat has to do their job. If one person doesn't do the job, there's no chance that boat wins. So it's it's just a phenomenally uplifting book coming from nothing. I, I like reading about people who have overcome, you know, Laura Hildebrandt's um, book Unbroken is incredible. She also wrote Sea Biscuit, which was a phenomenal book. In the 1937, I think it was the in print, the four things that most mentioned in print were Franklin Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, Adolf Hitler, and Sea Biscuit. This smaller horse from California, because everybody thinks it was on the radio, and it captured the country. He was taking on all these establishment big horses. But anyway, those are the kind of books I like to read. Okay, my last my last question for you. Yeah. When you when you were in fourth grade, what did you want to do the rest of your life? <laughs> Holy moly. Wasn't this? I I didn't I, <laughs> I guess when I was in fourth grade, I was hoping I would be some kind of athlete like most kids when they're that age. I played baseball, I wrestled, played soccer. Sorry, I just started soccer. But Honestly, I, I didn't really have a good vision. I didn't have a great vision when I got out of college what I was going to do. 
you know, I, I think, I think when I was that age, I just wanted to get along <laughs> and figure it out. You know, we moved to Long Island when I was eight. Uh, my brother was 10, I believe. And so, you know, we were already second or third. Now you're, you're in a whole new environment from New York City. And you moved a world away. Yeah. All of a sudden you're out in the, in, and by the way, it was kind of a new town at the time. So it was just developing. Now it's a very large town. Yeah, that's a great question. I wish I had a better answer. <laughs> no, you're great. <laughs> Tom, I just wanted to thank you so much for your time and your insights and your candidness. I, I truly appreciated this, so thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. I, it was a fun time. Appreciate it. I wish you continued success and enjoy those kids. Thank you, John. I will. Thanks for listening to this episode of Continuum. Please leave us a five-star rating and share Continuum with your colleagues and friends. We need your help in gaining new listeners and growing our following. And for more information on the IBC, visit our website, ribc.com. That's just O-U-R-I-B-C dot com. Have a great day.